Welcome back, Calm listeners. This is Methodical Millions, where you can better your future and better yourself. Cal, we've got a really awesome guest today. Everyone listening, please welcome Konstantin Bandin, founder and CEO of Tomi.ai. Konstantin, how are you today? Good. How are you? Very, very good. Where are you joining us from? Where are you located? I'm now on business travel in New York. Happy to be back to the city. I'm guessing Manhattan, New York City? Yeah, Midtown for now. Midtown, yeah. I was there for New Year's a year back. I love New York City. What a place of wonder, and that's where big things happen. So, uh, Constantine, what gets you excited about life? So I have a scientific background in terms of my education and early career, and I love learning something about the world, understanding it, and building something and see that it works. Right now, I work in the area of applying machine learning to marketing, and whenever I myself build a model or we build a model with our company, and I see that you know it's correctly predicts something and changes something in the world and creates value, that gives me so much satisfaction. That's awesome, and congrats, by the way. How do you go from science to marketing? Were you always in love with it growing up? And was there a moment where you said, I'm going to change into something else? Oh, great question. So growing up, math and physics was really easy for me. I just loved it and I loved to solve problems and participated in some math competitions, physics competitions. I was doing good relative to my peers. And also, you know, I'm a curious person. And somewhere by the end of high school time, I decided, what if I go and study physics and try to become a physicist? So that's really happened. And fast things forward, I was doing my PhD in theoretical physics, studying quantum entanglement and quantum computers. That was an exciting thing to do. And I did it from the computational standpoint, doing calculations of matrices multiplied by 10,000, doing some optimization problems, Monte Carlo simulations, etc. So it was computational approach. At some point, I understood that, you know, like I was doing theoretical studies and I understood that quantum computers is far away. You can do more interesting things in business when you apply your ability to understand the world, to build the models of the world, to apply it to business and see the outcome of the result right away, how lives of people are changed because of what you did. In science, I understood that if you are not super successful as a scientist, if you don't open a new field in certain area, you kind of know it's just craftsmanship for you to do science. And I wrote four papers and you know, like when you write a paper and you understand that 50 people will know about the paper, 10 will probably read it, and two of them will say, okay, Constantine, you did a great job. So I wanted to do something which changes lives of people around me, and that was business. That's amazing, Constantine. And I just want to pause for a second because I think Cal is obsessed with quantum computing, and uh, I know nothing about it, but it is fascinating, right? So it can break a lot of encryptions and do a lot of faster calculations. Is that the idea? Well, I'm actually incredibly fascinated in quantum mechanics, quantum entanglement, subatomic particles. So 
similar to you, Constantine, during school and high school, I was very good at mathematics and physics. And even though I eventually ended up studying accounting and finance, I did take my elective courses in physics and chemistry as well and mathematics. And I enjoy it to this day to the point that I figured once I'm financially stable to the point that I do not necessarily need a job per se, I would be pursuing my physics dream and maybe going back to school just to get my degree in particle physics. I'm just an amateur, obviously, compared to you. I'm literally just going with the flow, trying to read here and there. I have no degrees in physics, but it's just incredibly fascinating. And obviously as well, when it comes to quantum computing, I actually have not enough knowledge. I just love the behavior and complexity when it comes to quantum physics. Always very difficult to understand. And every time you feel that you grasp on something, there's something more complex that really comes up, at least to me. And it seems to be the trend for the way with the field works, really. So maybe you can share with us a bit more. I know maybe it might be a bit harder to explain for the average Joe, but it is incredibly fascinating. And you did mention as well, obviously, that the quantum computing is very, very far away. And pardon my ignorance on the topic, but I'm sure you're aware, obviously, a few years back, Google came up with some sort of prototype with their quantum computer. Does that still maybe show something in that field? Or are we still very, very far away from anything that can materialize into something useful? Quantum mechanics, especially quantum computing, is an astonishingly like, interesting field and uh, it has been developing really fast. I remember 2004, 2005, probably, the time when I was kind of deciding to leave science and to go to a more like business-related career. I was on a conference for young PhD students in quantum computing. And at the end of this conference, a very reputable scientist told us, okay, so we studied so much more during that. And he said, like, yeah, probably, you know, it's early for it to be experimental, but the size of the transistor on the microchips is continuously decreasing, decreasing, and somewhere by 2017, the size will be so small for the transistor that the quantum effects will be dominant and we'll have to do something related to quantum computing in our life computations. So, you know, like 15 years passed since that time and still Intel and AMD and NVIDIA are building their transistors on, on the chip in the same basically way as it was 20 years ago. Just a little bit smaller. The promise of quantum computers is really, really interesting. Like they say that by using the fabric of nature as the medium for calculation, you can do exponentially faster computation. In terms of applications, you can either improve the modern cryptography, which is based on classical calculations, or create a 100% proof unbreakable quantum channels of communication in terms of quantum cryptography. So the first thing is still not realized. The quantum computers are still not there. But the second piece is already working. There are like working prototypes of communication between a couple of banks in Switzerland, as far as I understand, are using these 100% safe communication protocols. If you go into a more general kind of view and this dream of the, as we say, general purpose quantum computer, it is still not there. The most interesting quantum algorithms that may potentially change our lives require like at least thousands of quantum bits to make them work. And we are now still 
using several quantum bits in the real system. And my, my personal point of view is maybe the nature don't have the free lunch. And the more we progress in the area, the more we'll face new and new challenges to build this large-scale quantum computer. The time will show. I'm glad that companies like Google, Alibaba, IBM, they are all investing in this field so that not only governments are kind of doing this research. If we are lucky, we'll see some progress in the next decade or so, even more, and it will be exciting to see the change. But for now, I switch to business to answer one of your previous questions. Why marketing? Actually, more like I love doing digital marketing the most because it's all about data. It's about using subtle signals that you get from online behavior of consumers and to taking decisions of whom to show, what kind of ad, how to target the right audience. It's all about math right now and data science. And again, you basically use the same math here as you do it for Monte Carlo simulation for a quantum mechanical system. So from a mathematics perspective, the switch was kind of easy. And from the field perspective, you see much faster the result of your work when you do business or you do marketing. That's why I get so much satisfaction right now. That's awesome. And can we take a step back and just to explain for our listeners how quantum computing works? Classic computing is on and off for a bit, right? Like a zero and one. And you can turn that into programming language and then into applications. And that's my understanding. But how do you express a quantum bit? And did you say that we're using quantum bits now? Can you have classical bits and quantum bits together? Yeah, basically, in order to run a quantum computer, you all, of course, need uh, some supporting classical computers to make it operate. That's for sure. The key difference between the quantum bit versus the bit of information that the quantum bit from some kind of philosophical standpoint can be in both states at the same time. It can be a zero and one at the same time. And before you measure the result, you don't know. When I was growing up as a physicist, I used to believe in the mainstream interpretation of quantum mechanics. It's called Copenhagen Consensus. It was adopted in 1929 by the famous Nobel Prize winning scientists of that time. And it basically says, do the calculation, you know, follow the standard procedures, and you'll predict how the quantum systems behave. But you know, the more I think about it, and the more I read about it, I continue reading some stuff in this area, the more I believe that we live in a multiverse. It's an old concept developed by Hugo Everett in 1934. And the concept is that we live in a world where every moment in time our universe splits into multiple possibilities. And we just happen to stay in one of these possibilities and other copies are staying in the other slices of the universe. It looks like the quantum computers allow us to do computation basically in multiple variants of the universe, where in one variant of the universe, the quantum bit is zero. In another one, the quantum bit is one. So you run this computation for a while, and then with the help of a quantum interference, you can kind of grasp the behavior of this quantum qubit in parallel universes. That's the 
potential speed up in calculation that you may get from quantum computers. So it's, now it's like starting to sound like real crazy scientific stuff, you know, like parallel universes and multiverse, just to ground this conversation. I don't know a really good example of how to prove that we really live in the multiverse or we just live in a boring, ordinary, single variant of the universe. It's just literally impossible to test it with practical means. Yeah, I just want to add to what you said. I'm familiar, like you said, with the many world interpretation. That's the idea of quantum entanglement, John, is you do not know the exact state of a certain particle or a certain message until you are able to measure it. And once you measure it, you would know what the measure of the entangled particle would be, even if it is in the far end of the universe. And basically, you're able to transit information faster than the speed of light, theoretically speaking. It's very, very fascinating for me. I'm very excited hearing this stuff, but it can get quite complicated. I'm really glad to hear from you such an easy explanation in some way of what I said. And it's really interesting to talk with someone who was also as excited as I was and I'm now about physics. So I have like very practical conclusion from my purely theoretical thoughts about is it a multiverse that we live in, is it not? Literally, there is no way to test it scientifically. But if you believe in multiverse, you actually understand why you want to be a good person. But for me, like the belief that you know the multiverse is a good possibility for our world, I understand if I do something wrong. In some of the variants of the multiverse, myself in that universe, probably with low chance, like in a million of universes, I will pay for it back. And I will be really, really sad that I did that thing. And for me, you know, this purely philosophical concept helps to get the motivation to be a, a good person. And also like another practical idea that I get from these purely philosophical things is life insurance. You know, like you can insure yourself and make sure that if you, for some unfortunate reason, die, your relatives will get some compensation for that. And you may think, oh, it's super unlikely that, you know, I'm young, etc., etc. But, you know, when you think that, okay, like our world is so, so complex and so random. So what if in, you know, very small share of universes, you actually die from an accident, for example, and you care about your relatives, even in, in another universe, right? So from that standpoint, the life insurance makes sense, even if you don't benefit from it at all. Yeah, I absolutely get it. Because with infinite universes, with infinite possibilities, and the probability of one of these universes, including mine, the one that I live in, that I can get into an accident at a young age, for example, and pass away, is high. So technically, an insurance can sound like a good idea or is a good idea in this case, if you were to believe in the many worlds interpretation or the multiverse. I never thought of it that way, but it's brilliant. So thanks for a really, really brilliant way to think of it, because obviously I'm quite intrigued in the whole concept here of it. And it's something that scientifically we can't really measure or are able to get hard conclusion on. But for me, at least, and I'm sure for many other people out there who are passionate about physics or science would think that it's a possibility that you can't really write off because it makes a lot of sense. Do you think quantum particles 
can be entangled between different multiverses? Is that a possibility? Or is it just each universe has their own particles within one another? I guess why I'm saying this is, to your example of video game, can someone maybe upload your consciousness into another multiverse and then we'll be traveling between them in the future, just like we travel on planes? Or is that way too far-fetched? <laughs> That's a really good plot for a movie. Imagine you invent a device and you can upload your consciousness into a completely different variant of the universe that dinosaurs didn't die and you could live in another universe. So it will be a really nice plot for a movie or even a series. But I believe it's not possible with our real life. It's just a good story to tell. But getting back to the first part of your question, we can only tell about the belief of the top scientists in the world. When you cannot measure it, scientifically prove it or disprove it, it becomes some sense of belief or like a religion. So what I remember, there was some big study and questionnaire of the top scientists in the world, and they were asked what type of quantum mechanics interpretation they believe in. Of course, the majority of scientists believed in the Copenhagen consensus, which says, believe it works, do the math, and do your calculation. 17% of scientists, especially those who reached the highest success in their career, like Nobel Prize winners, etc., they believed in the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. So that's probably the answer to your question. Not the probability, but the common belief is that, you know, with 17% chance, we are living in the many worlds universe. And in terms of traveling between the universes, it's highly unlikely. But a good plot. Let's do a movie about it. Definitely. And if we can't figure out the transposing consciousness between these universes, I think at least communicate. So if quantum computing or entanglement can communicate, and if there's some way to link, we can at least watch YouTube videos from another multiverse. That would be funny. So really, really fascinating stuff. You have to keep us updated. As the space evolves, I think it's very nascent and developing. And do you believe that quantum computing will have a step change in technology, healthcare, and like what's going to be changed forever once we have quantum computing on our smartphone? What's the biggest benefit to society or the world that will come from that? First of all, I would prefer to talk about if it will happen, but not when it happens. There is good progress theoretically and experimentally, but we still don't have general quantum computer. What we can do now as scientists or research labs, we can do not general quantum computers, but limited use quantum computer. When we hear some success that is happening in Google or D-Wave and others, they use a limited version of quantum computation. And usually these kind of limited applications of quantum computers is good at modeling the real quantum system. So you basically use one quantum system in a quantum computer to model the behavior of another quantum system. And the idea here is that if you use conventional computers to do that computation, it becomes exponentially complex real quick with the size of the natural system you are trying to model. But with quantum computation, it's linear. The potential application that I see in order to model quantum effects in complex molecules like proteins, 
you'll probably need to use quantum computers to do that. Even limited versions of quantum computers, not the general quantum computers that can break the cryptography in our world, but this limited version that will be helpful for us to model proteins with tens and hundreds of atoms in them and to do it quicker than we can do in the conventional computer. That is a really likely development in this area, and we are really heading there. But this is, once again, one of the applications, not the most scary one. The most scary one, if someone will ever be able to build the general quantum computer on a large scale, that will transform our lives significantly. A lot of things like Bitcoin will become obsolete because what if general quantum computer will break the hashes used by Bitcoin as a means of making sure that the transactions are unique? Or like computational cryptography, like the ordinary cryptography everywhere in our lives, especially in finance, and what if general quantum computer will break it? So we'll need to change the whole industries, the whole approach of making transactions, etc. So this is one of the ways where it can go, but I don't see substantial progress in this particular general quantum computing area. Yeah, that's awesome and a good point. I was actually going to mention the Bitcoin thing because we talk about it a lot. It's all over the news. And I think a lot of people are starting to the aspiration of wealth accumulation and whether it's Bitcoin or any crypto, I think it's nice because it's so divisible and you don't need to have a lot of money to get in the space. So it will be interesting to follow for sure. Let's talk about your move to Tomi AI. I just pulled up Google. It looks like you raised a million dollars in June, which is fantastic. Congrats. Can you tell us a bit of what that process was like raising money? Yeah, thank you for the congrats. And so with Tomi AI, I had the fast moving career in marketing, especially in digital marketing. I used to be a chief marketing officer in a largest e-commerce website in Russia, basically like the Amazon of Russia called Ozon. So the company is doing really well. COVID helped it to grow in even faster. Now it's like more than $10 billion company on NASDAQ. So I used to be CMO there and I was doing like this digitally driven marketing, you know, with analytics, with advanced predictive analytics etc. And at some point, I decided to make a change and get back to the United States. I joined the technology real estate company Compass here in New York. And, you know, really, really quick, like in the first few months in the company, I understood that there is a huge problem in digital marketing for indices like real estate. So in e-commerce, in online shopping, you understand right away who is a buyer, who is not. Like people come to your website, research, they decide to buy iPhone, for example, and then they click buy, enter their payment details, and you know, voila, you have the buyer. And can use Google and Facebook ads to quickly optimize for the right audience because you have a signal to optimize for. People who bought on your website right away in the session online. But in real estate, on the contrary, the transactions happen with some delay weeks or months. So you come to the website, you look for listings, you research, you study you know, different things about an apartment or a house, and then you buy a house maybe like in two, three months from that moment. So it's a postponed transaction. It happens offline. So still, at least in the US, you need to sign a piece of paper as a proof of contract in real estate. And third, it's a large transaction and it happens really rarely. 
And with that, you cannot optimize your ads in Google and Facebook, like in e-commerce, for the end benefit for you as a seller of a house, for example. For example, if you're a developer of apartments or houses, you build them and sell them, you cannot optimize your ads in Google and Facebook for that, as we say in marketing, bottom of the funnel event. And I did some predictive marketing tricks and hacks in my previous work, and I quickly understood that that can be a good solution. And I decided to start my own company. I did it in the beginning of 2020. So I left Compass, started Tommy, developed the first prototype of the service. And the idea was simple. Let's use the behavior of consumers on the website, all the things they do on the website to predict their propensity to buy a house in the future or buy some expensive service in the future, so to buy something which is, as I said, is postponed offline, large transaction, and then use this score that we have calculated as the proxy for optimization in Google and Facebook by sending this score to Google and Facebook as if the transaction happened. And, uh, you know, with the first customers that the company started to get April 2020, we see that it actually works. So we can improve the efficiency of online ads for these traditional businesses, I would say, with large sales cycles and to help them basically become e-commerce from the standpoint of Google and Facebook ads and to do their online marketing more efficiently with the help of predictive models machine learning and behavioral data for consumers on their website. Just to give you some hint on how it works, in real estate, John Carl, like, do you go to Zillow to check price of a house of your neighbor? Do you come to real estate-related websites just for kind of curiosity to see what's going on in the market? Yeah, all the time. I actually bought a house last year and I didn't really pay attention until I started knowing I was going to make a change, but I still follow prices now, even though I'm not in the market and I'll follow watch listings in the area. So, I mean, it is a good question. Am I in the market or not? Even though I'm a user showing up, right? Yeah. Yeah. So in marketing, we call these people dreamers, like people who are not in the market, but they're still active. Dreamers is a concept for real estate or for travel. Like people, you know, usually go to a travel website and say, Oh, what if I fly to Maldives and how much it would cost? It can be dreaming before you actually do it or just imagine how it would look like. So in digital marketing, these people are called dreamers. And of course, you need to separate your effort in terms of showing your ads more to those people who are in the market and actually will do the transaction in the future versus people who are just curious. And as an example of real estate, if you just want to check your neighbor's sold a house and you want to check what was the price of a house, you just will go there and go to a specific listing, check the price, and, and that's it. But if you are interested to buy a house, with your behavior on the website, you'll clearly show that by trying the mortgage calculator on a page, by going to the information about the schools in the region where you are researching. So you'll leave these subtle behavioral clues that we collect like anonymous website behavior, and we correlate all of these minute clues of consumer behavior with the future actual transactions that happen. And by doing so, we can separate the majority of website visitors for these businesses. 80-90% of the visitors of a real estate website or a bank of an insurance company, automotive company, 
they're not in the market. So we can separate them from those who are really interested, who have the intent to buy in the future, and to make sure that Google and Facebook with their ads are showing ads more frequently to those higher intent consumers than others. That's amazing. And I work in the car business. We use a bit of paid search and paid social through Facebook as well. I think there was a stat where 40% of raised money goes into Google and Facebook ads from a modern startup. So take a company like DoorDash competing with Uber or something that has very specific results, capturing someone who wants to buy a new customer and then you can tell it works, right? You have your customer acquisition cost, the lifetime value, how much they spend. And this is the model, how a lot of these businesses and how they work. But I like how you brought up real estate because I guess the word's called attribution, like in the car business, there's not an online purchase. It's through the phone. It's months later. It's someone using Google My Business and showing up and maybe referring a friend. So it's very muddy. And I think a lot of businesses will throw money. And because these traditional businesses don't get the sale right away, is attribution a waste of time? Or is that exactly what you're trying to solve? Is this kind of the best solution out there for brick and mortar or someone who has a slower sales cycle? Yeah, exactly. So attribution is one of the pillars of our product. We've been talking mostly about optimization part, how we technically make sure that Google and Facebook ads are shown to the higher intent website visitors. We also do targeting by making sure that the advertiser is showing the repeated ads, you know, with targeting ads to the recent website visitors, only to those who deserve to be shown, who have higher propensity to convert in the future. But also, like as a third pillar, we do the attribution modeling. And our approach is that, you know, if someone comes to your website, let's talk about cars. So basically, in Tomii, we have customers in many industries already. We have real estate, banks, online education companies, insurance companies. We don't have car clients yet. We're in a good conversations with them. But it's a really also a good example. People come to your website, check what these cars have. Then they do a test drive maybe in a week or two after that. Then they explore different options and we do a transaction probably in a few weeks from the first interaction with the website of the dealership or the brand. And in terms of attribution modeling, how we solve this problem for our customers that buy our service, we use the behavioral clues that I said for consumers who go to the website and research online. We predict what is their propensity to buy in the future. And the more you behave like someone who is going to buy, the higher you get the value. And then if you add up the values of multiple website visits in the same channel, you can understand what type of traffic that you acquire to your website has better expected value in the future. And you can estimate the quality of your traffic that you buy the return on investment for different channels much quicker than, you know, like throwing an ad, waiting for people to subscribe, getting into a test drive, converting eventually into a transaction. You don't wait for these three, four weeks for the car sale to happen. You already can get some hint on who is more likely to convert and who is less and to make sure that your ads are bringing those who are high intenders rather than non-relevant audience or dreamer. I just want to say I agree with you guys. That's really, really cool. So you mentioned something about the return investment. 
from the company or the business that's cooperating or higher for your services, what is the expected ROI for them? I know it differs probably from sector to sector, but do you have any percentage ideas of what they can expect in terms of using your services? Yeah, so that's a great question. And for these companies with long sales cycles offline, with large transaction, rare transaction, you know, we can deliver up to 50 to 100% improvement in efficiency for their existing efforts in digital marketing in wide targeting channels like Facebook or display or YouTube ads, like where you really take the decision where to show your ad among like 300 million people, you know, like if you talk about the US. So here we can get to 50 or 100% improvement in return on investment. Many of our customers are actually interested in a different story. So they already invest some money in Facebook and in Google ads and they reasonable return on investment so that, you know, they have positive unit economic, as we say in growth departments of companies. And they just want to spend more with the same return on advertising spend. And they just cannot do it because if they start to spend more, their efficiency drops. How we can help them we can help them to expand their channel, to spend more with Facebook, to spend more with Google, and to stay at the target level of efficiency for them, and basically to grow the business with the same unit economics we used to do for working with Tony AI. That's awesome. And when you take a company who needs to make sure they're growing, which I think, you know, no one wants to burn money. And that was always the cliche way of billboards on the road and newspapers, like attribution was always such a negligible thing. And people said it was a top-down model. You have half a million people reading this newspaper or 100,000 people crossing this billboard every day. And that was the traditional sales pitch of traditional media. So you're like a hyper-focused version of just the Google and Facebook, which is already much better than traditional media. So this sounds awesome. And is it just basically the machine learning. And I'm curious about the technical aspects. So you'll get inputs of people browsing and I guess by their IP address and maybe their habits. And you can see them, as you said, repetitively, you know, engaging with the site and then you'll score them in your own way. And then that's kind of the unique secret sauce, I guess, is what you're getting at. So it sounds awesome. And is this basically on autopilot after, or does it require a constant measuring of each new customer to make sure they're always categorized the right way. Someone can't just take this, you know, and use it once. They have to use it all the time, right? Yeah, it's a very good question. And that's basically why it was so easy to decide to leave the corporate world to pause my corporate career and to go into entrepreneurship for the first time in my life. Because I saw a really big market, $600 billion digital advertising market globally, which is growing. But also with technology, you know, that does a lot of cool and complex stuff on the end of the software provider, Tommy AI, but for the marketers, doesn't require that much of the change in what they do. How digital marketers work, let's take like in an, an e-commerce website, you do the integration of Google and Facebook, and whenever you sell something to a consumer, you send a little hit to Google and Facebook saying, hey, this particular website visitor actually converted and bought something for like $1,000. And Google and Facebook from their end 
use these things of successful transactions to train their own machine learning models, huge machine learning models that use a lot of information about what we like, what we don't like, where we go, etc. And by using these positive outcomes as transactions, they kind of build the machine learning models to show the ads to the relevant people. So this is their bread and butter. They do it better than anyone else. In Tomii, we believe that the marketer shouldn't even try to do it better than Google or Facebook with ads. The key goal for a marketer, especially in industries with long sales cycles that are happening offline, it's important to tell to Google and Facebook who is a higher value website visitor for you and who is not, and to tell it as quick as possible. So that's basically what we do with our software in Tomii. So whenever our customers do the integration with us, everything works technically on our end through the API integrations with the website, with the CRM of the customer and with Google and Facebook advertising platforms. And for marketer, we used to run the ads. They used some different event on their website. For example, they used to optimize for a collected contact. In terms of car industry, like you go to a, a car dealership website and you leave your contact for a, a test drive. Maybe you'll not show up for a test drive. In many cases, nothing happens. But marketers without Tomii maximize the number of contacts they collect this way. And most of these contacts are not good and not converting. But with Tomii, they get a new conversion inside their Facebook ad accounts, which is this predicted propensity to buy in the future. And they just change their ad optimization target to that and start to get better quality traffic, better quality contacts and leads. And for them, operationally, they get more doing the same. A couple questions. A lot of our guests, some of them do a lot of dropship e-commerce, but not a lot of them build software. So for our listeners, if you don't mind sharing, did you code this all yourself? Did you hire a small team before raising money? And if we can touch on that whole raising money part, I always call money fuel. So I'm assuming you're going to use that to grow and scale and that kind of stuff. How did you find your first paying customer? And then when did you decide to say, hey, we actually need to grow and raise from there? Great question. And I have an interesting story to tell. You know, I got this idea. I started to write the code myself. I'm not uh, a professional coder. I used to do machine learning models by myself when I was running the big team of data scientists in my previous jobs. I wrote the minimum viable product and got my first like four customers in summer of 2020. Then two more by the end of the year. So basically, I was able to get to the first paying six customers alone, like a sole entrepreneur. And I had a wide enough and deep enough skill set to code the working prototype, to be able to sell to first customers. Some of them were the companies and people who I knew from my previous corporate work. And some of them were just out of the street. And by the end of 2020, I saw already that taking off, it started to generate revenue and it's working on the first customers. And I started to hire a team and started the process of fundraising. And in terms of the team, we are now uh, 15 people. Half of them are technical team. Another half is marketing, sales, and other business functions. You know, like, of course, when I hired the first engineers, the first engineer was a good friend of mine from a long time ago. He and the team rewrote my MVP completely so that it's more 
to the standard of writing the software, scalable, stable, secure. Most importantly, it allows us now to connect customers much more quicker and in a more smooth way. Like we can now connect a customer every week, which is great. And in terms of fundraising, I studied in Stanford a long time ago, 10 years ago, for an MBA. You know, I didn't think to start a startup at the time. I wanted to go to a big company and make it bigger. But, you know, you take classes in entrepreneurship, you take classes in fundraising. The theory of fundraising was clear to me. But from practical standpoint, you know, when you do it for the first time, it's stressful. I don't know, 100 calls or even more with potential investors and you pitch the idea, you evolve the idea with time and, you know, get some interesting insights. Even if you don't get money, you definitely get an advice. And that was an, a really interesting journey for me this spring when I was already raising money. And I believe, you know, with my next fundraising or my next venture, it will be probably less stress and more fun. What a wonderful story. And I love that journey is just as you started the conversation with be curious about the world, you took all your skills and you saw a need for this and you just went at it. So for everyone listening, you don't have to be a coder to code. You can just learn out of passion. And I always say that someone doing something out of passion will go much further ahead than someone who has to do it for a nine to five. So for everyone out there who is thinking about an idea and wants to try, it could take a hundred phone calls to get a yes. And it could take a lot of thinking and advice. So as we wrap up here, do you have any advice for people who want to start a business or move to entrepreneurship? What would you tell them? Great question. I would start with simple things like do it as early as possible. You can say, okay, I need to get more experience. I need to learn how it works in a big company. That was my route. But do it when you're young. Do it when your motivation will compensate for any other inconveniences of entrepreneurship. Doing a startup when you already have kids, the startup is basically your kid. It's additionally hard. So if you feel like you want to try it and you feel like you want to solve some big problems and you want to try do it as early as possible in your life it will be much easier for you to do this and you'll learn on the way if you fail and 90 percent of these startups fail in the first year or two no problem you'll probably try another one or you'll go to the company and you'll have invaluable experience of building your own enterprise do it as early as possible the second advice like in terms of what to do just do something that changes lives of people in changes lives of consumers or changes the organization that you're working with as a B2B company. So if you believe you can change something which is big, for sure you'll find a way how to create value out of it or create a big interesting business from that. So in my case, in Tommy in the AI example, there is like a huge industry, $600 billion, a really big pain for a niche of the long sales cycles kind of businesses there. And I understand that I can change the life of digital marketers who are working in this company. And that's why I started Tommy I and give me additional motivation to go through the dark side of the entrepreneurship. What a wonderful hour full of curiosity and love hearing your journey. So really, really appreciate your time today. Continued success. We'd love to have you back on in the future as you hit some milestones or as you know, the world of quantum computing evolves, it was very insightful. So thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for the conversation. It was a pleasure. Thank you, John. Thank you, Cal. Absolute pleasure speaking with you, Constantine. And 
We can't wait to have you back in the future. Feel free to shout out anytime you want. Thanks again. So with that said, let's wrap up today's episode. Thank you for listening to another episode of Methodical Millions, where you can better your future and better yourself. Thanks, everyone.